you've been with us over the past couple weeks, you know that we are doing something a little bit different for the next couple of months. We're not going, normally we go verse by verse through uh, books of the Bible, and um, uh, the elders have asked that we uh, kind of uh, take some time, so we're going to take a couple of months and uh, go through and do a little bit more of a topical study in the Bible, but about, uh, we've, we've entitled it Church 101, and so we're going to cover various aspects of church life and life together. Uh, next week, Gary's going to talk about uh, church discipline, uh, and so that'll be that's vitally important. Um, one of the things that I um, think is very important about that topic is that a, a church that is biblical does church discipline. And so one of the things that you need to think about, and this is coming up at the end of this month, we'll be looking at selecting um, elders uh, for the next term, is that uh, if you take church discipline seriously, you should take the elders who are serving over you seriously as well. And so uh, that'll be an important study together next week. This week we are looking at um, fellowship. We're looking at uh, a fellowship uh, and uh, life together in the church, and we are going to be in the book of Philippians. But, but one of the things is you look at the Bible, when you read the Bible, one of the marks of the church is uh, fellowship, is uh, uh, unity. And so the world, uh, when they look at the church, of all people, of all places, when they look at the church, they should see a unified people. I won't ask for a raise of hands. Um, but many of you probably got here to this church uh, because of maybe conflict in a church that you came from, a conflict that was kind of so heavy and so intense that um, you just couldn't stay in it any longer. One of the things that's been great about uh, the history of Signal Mountain Bible Church, it has had its share of conflicts, but it has weathered that storm over the years. It, it's handled conflict well. I want to define what I mean by fellowship um, because I think it's important and these are from two Bible dictionaries, but Erdman's Bible dictionary uh, defines fellowship in this way, the communion of common faith, experiences and expressions shared by the family of believers as well as the intimate relationships they have with God. Harper Collins Bible Dictionary uh, says it this way, and you'll notice similarities in the definition. Communal association for the mutual benefit of those involved. The intimate relationship that believers have with God through Christ Jesus. The problem, the problem I think, one of the problems that plagues uh, the church, and, and by this I mean the universal church and therefore infects the local church, is that many times when we talk about fellowship and when we look at fellowship among believers, is that it's really artificial. It's, it's really artificial. And I joked about this last week and I thought about it some more. Um, I grew up in a church that when you talked about fellowship, it was um, ice cream fellowship, dessert fellowship. I mentioned last week Wednesday night fellowship, which meant eating together which is a means which can lead to fellowship, but those things in and of themselves aren't fellowship. 
That is a means of doing something because you're supposed to do it. And what I want to challenge us with this morning is that when we look at the Bible, it's not just a mere doing, but fellowship has the connotation of being. There's a being that's involved with fellowship and not just a doing. One of the things that's interesting, and uh, he didn't know I was going to use this example, and many of you have heard this example, and um, uh, one of the reasons I'm using it is because I, I had a similar experience of, um, I have seen these glorious pictures of Paul Dabney when he was younger and had the long red hair. And he did look like someone you may want to avoid on the streets. And one of the testimonies that Paul gives about as he found his way here through various circumstances that uh, he would go in many churches and be rejected because of his appearance. We don't hold that against him now. Um, b- but one of the things that happened is that he, as he came into this fellowship at Single Mountain Bible Church, uh, he, he talks about how it was different, how he was immediately greeted And it wasn't people that were like him, it was people that were different than him, opening, extending the hand of fellowship, opening the arms of fellowship uh, to him. Uh, Similarly, when I was in college, God really got a hold of my life. Um, I was really burnt out on the church. I had seen a lot of things in my younger years about the church that I felt like was fake and was phony. I had a big beard and long hair, and I would do the same thing that Paul did. I would go sit in the back of churches and just think, huh. I wonder if they're going to come talk to me. And it was very evident that there was the uh, obligatory, um, uh, probably deacon that was made to come talk to me just to make sure that I wasn't doing anything bad in the back of the church. And in other words, there was this like doing of this thing. And, and one of the things that began to change my heart about church was that as I looked at the Word of God, I found that the church is, to, is supposed to be a place where we are fellowshipping, where we are sharing, where we are united together. People of different backgrounds, of, of different colors, of different life experiences, that when they come together, there's something here that is unifying them towards one another. And what we see in the Bible is that it is vital. It's vital. And we see it all throughout the New Testament uh, that we are supposed to be united and we're united. And you hear these these decrees like in Ephesians chapter 4. Let me go there real quick. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, over all who is of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. One of the things that started bubbling up probably ten or so years ago that just made my stomach turn uh, as, a, as a young pastor, uh, I was riding my bike through North Georgia, and I won't name the church, uh, but there was a church that advertised itself like this. It's the church for people who didn't like church. And one of the things that was becoming very popular during this time was that there were these gatherings, these churches that were popping up, and what they were populating themselves with were people who looked and felt, or the thing that united them wasn't the gospel, it was other things other than the gospel. And it just broke my heart. 
it just broke my heart because as a, as a church, as a body, we should be a diverse people who are centered around the right things. And we should be one. We should be one and centered around this oneness and meeting together. Now, we are going to be in the book of Philippians this morning. And Paul is very concerned with this whole idea of fellowship uh, in, in this book to the Philippians. In fact, uh, the word koinonia, which is translated fellowship, is, is used 19 times in the New Testament, three times in this book. And also throughout this book, there are other words. Uh, there, there's this prefix that Paul uses a lot um, in this book that's, that denotes together, togetherness, uh, similarities, being with one another. And so this book has a lot to do with fellowship. And we're going to see this morning a couple of things. And before we jump into the text, I just want to give you three things that I hope you see. The first thing is that I hope you see the need for fellowship. I hope one of the things that you walk away with um, as we are, not only this morning, but as we're doing this sermon series, is that this need for fellowship. The thing this morning that I really want you to see also is that you will see what causes blocks or breaks in fellowship. And then lastly, lastly, how to overcome this sin, this sin, these blocks, these breaks that lead to a decrease in fellowship. Now, last week, um, you, you know, one of the things I think as you, as you go through your Christian life, I think everybody hits this at some point. Sometimes as we go through our Christian life, one of the things that we end up thinking is, man, you know, living a Christian life would be so much easier if you didn't have to deal with other Christians. The problem is, is that, not the problem, the beauty is, like I said last week, God doesn't save us into an individual uh, existence. God saves us into His church. We, as we're saved, we're brought into the church, into the family. We're adopted into a family, a group of people. We become part of the body. We become part of the people, the remnant whom God is working in and through. And we talked last week that this is not only global, the, the church global, but it's also life together in a local church. And this life oftentimes gets hard. Oftentimes gets hard. And Paul, as he was writing to the church at Philippi, there were some things going on. There was some disunity going on within the church. It was not... Um, full-blown like it could be, but Paul loved this church so much that as he was writing to them, he was wanting them to be careful. He was wanting them to watch out. He was wanting to warn them against disunity that could pop in and among them. Now, as Paul was writing this, he was in prison, and the church at Philippi had been extremely gracious to him. They had shown really what fellowship should look like to Paul. They, and there was this mutual love back and forth. And, and as they were showing this love to him, Paul, as he's writing this letter back, is, is telling them, hey, listen, I want you to watch out. Look in chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, notice, notice this, notice the tone, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. 
in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. So there's Paul as he's writing this and he's telling them to unify. One of the reasons he wants them to unify is because Paul knows that God has given the church, God has given fellowship to us to help us in the day of hardships and persecution. That our unity together is what is going to pull them through. Unity not only together but around the right thing. He's preparing them for a life of hardships. You know, one of the other things that uh, fellowship does, as Gary has said uh, quite often, is that God has given us three things for growth and godliness. Do you remember what they are? Oh, you haven't been listening over the years. I should make you stand up again if you've been here since the first days, and if you can't quote this, then... Oh, okay, quit. God's Word over us, the Spirit within us, and the body around us. All right, A+. plus. Uh, somebody get him a star. <laughs> All right. Good, good, good. Good job, Whip. And, and the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God, or the people of God around us, you know, one of the things that we see there is that as we are going along and, and, and as we, are, we have the body of Christ around us, not only are people here for our encouragement, but God has given the people of God around us spiritual gifts. And, and if you ever look and study about spiritual gifts, that spiritual gifts are meant to be used within the church. The, the, the gifts are actually, it said, are given to the body, the church. And so your gifts are not your own, but they're, they're meant to be used in and among other Christians. And that helps us to grow and to be encouraged and other things. The, the other thing is this, and I was meeting uh, with a man last week, and he was talking about a a believer that he knew that was struggling and this believer was really isolated and he put it nicely. He said that, you know, that one of the things that happens is that when believers are isolated, there's nobody around them to rub off their rough edges. I'm like, yeah, that's a good description of, of body life. As we're going through this world together, we've got these rough edges and one of the ways that God graciously helps us rub off those rough edges is through the body. Now, I want you to see the goal that Paul has as we look at our text. In verse 2, here's the goal. The goal is that Paul's joy would be made complete by the church at Philippi being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, and intent on one purpose. And so the church is united with the same mind, with the same love, and the same spirit, with the same purpose. And what you may be thinking if you're thinking deeply about this is, Impossible. Impossible. When I was in seminary, I made it a point to go to the business meetings that were held monthly at the church I was attending that was highly dysfunctional. And one of my favorite fights was where to, sign, where to, uh, where to put the sign for the cookie walk after the cookie walk was over. And it was about 45 minutes. And I, I'm pretty sure somebody ended up leaving the church over that disagreement. It's insane. When we look at this, and many of you have been through 
these type situations, you think, oh my goodness, same mind, same love, united in the Spirit, one purpose, impossible. And what I want to say is, yes, but with God, all things are possible. And here's what I want you to hear. What makes us different, what makes our fellowship different than a, a fellowship of um, uh, Georgia football fans or whatever, what makes our fellowship different is that our fellowship is supernatural. Our fellowship is supernatural, and I want you to hear it uh, in this text. And you'll hear it as we go. So you you saw the goal in verse 2, and notice we get a hint of this supernatural power in verse 1. Now Spurgeon, interestingly, uh, and I think in a good way, uh, tells us that it's it's easier to read verse 1 if instead of using the word if, we use the word since. Because it's used kind of as a rhetorical device here. So... So listen to this in verse 2. Since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation of love, since there is fellowship of the Spirit, since there is affection and compassion, because of this, because of this, we're able to fulfill this unity, this fellowship that we see in verse 2. Christ is our hope. The whole reason that we gather here together is because we have been forgiven of our sins. We have been in the midst of our trespasses, in the midst of our sins, in the midst of our darkness. We have been ransomed by God. God so loved us that He gave His Son. Christ has become our hope. Christ has become our reconciliation. And not only that, we weren't weren't just left there, but as Christ came and died and rose from the dead and He ascended, that we've been given the Spirit. And the Spirit of God was given to us to lead us into all truth and to lead us into unity together. So that we can have fellowship with God. And this fellowship with God should lead to us having fellowship with other believers because we're united in Christ. What is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like it, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Do you... Do you remember uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer? What He prays for? He prays, Father, make them what? Father, make them one as you and I are one. Our relationship with the Lord, our relationship with God that is only brought to us by Jesus, it's from there, it's from that being, it's who we are, should lead us into this unity and fellowship of others. This is what binds us together. This is the flow of the Christian life. And look, I love that in, in this verse, in these verses, Paul gives us, notice he gives us the obstacle. He gives us the obstacle. I want you to see the obstacle to fellowship in verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty Conceit. 
Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. This word selfishness here is this connotation of this personal preeminence, this this I matter most. Isn't this the gospel of our culture? You and, and what you want in life is what matters most, so go and get it. Do for yourself. You're the center of your own universe. It's interesting, this is the, the same word in this text is used in verse 17 where Paul is talking about he's glad that the gospel is being proclaimed. Even among those, look at verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. That these men were preaching the gospel, but they were doing it for themselves. They were trying to get something out of it. It's this same word. And this is the obstacle to fellowship. The example that I like to give when we're talking about this is that as Christians, as Christians, we are meant, the Christian life is meant to be lived uh, like we are conduits or we are pipes. Or a better example might be a river that is flowing. And our source, we are being poured into by God. And what we are supposed to do is what God is pouring in us is supposed to come out of us. And the problem is, is that many of us clog that pipe up or dam up that river. And we do that because we, our selfishness, our, our, our need for us to be preeminent in our own life becomes so big in our minds and in our hearts and in our soul for various reasons that, that what is supposed to be a functioning pipe becomes clogged up and What happens when a pipe gets clogged up? A lot of garbage comes out. It's easy to see, easy to see how this affects fellowship. You know, if we were, as I go over to the book of James, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Notice that this person that James is describing is very self-centered, and that's why they get discontent, and that's where the quarrels come from. Or, have you ever noticed uh, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, if, if we just read this in isolation... I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in, a, in harmony in the Lord. That at first glance, it seems like that Paul is saying, just get over it. But if we read this book, we see Paul over and over and over telling uh, this church what the unity should be. And then we see in these verses what he says causes disunity. And so when we get to that verse where he's urging them to get along... What he's saying is, tell them to get over themselves. Tell them to get over themselves. And so, the key to fellowship is to be other focused. Look at verse 3 and 4. Very simple verses, right? Simple to read. But, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. So I want to give you two 
big keys on how to maintain fellowship and unity. The first thing is this. As we talk about humility and as we talk about pride and we talk about self-centeredness, is that you have to be self-aware. You have to be self-aware. What I mean by this is that when you are in conflict with someone, you've got to be asking yourself the question, why am I frustrated? Why am I bothered? You've got to be able to examine, why am I doing what I'm doing? Are you, is your motivation loving someone else? Is your motivation putting someone's needs and wants above your own? Or is the thing that's causing distress in that relationship the fact that you are being self-centered and conceited and you want what you want and therefore it's rubbing it up against another person who wants what they want? You know what's interesting is most conflicts, most of the time conflicts are among two people who are in that stage of I want what I want and we are really good at pointing out how the other one's being selfish and conceited. And what I'm asking us to do is to examine our own motives. Our own motives. Another thing here that I just want us to be aware of is that one of the things that I think leads to a lack of deep fellowship, and I mentioned artificial fellowship earlier, is that sometimes we just do things because we're supposed to do them, and that leads to artificial fellowship, and it, it, it blocks the deepness of intimacy that we can have with one another. Because if I'm just doing something because I'm supposed to do it, I won't get the benefit of that fellowship. So let me give you an example of that. If I were to invite Gary over to my house because the Bible says I need to have fellowship with Gary, but the only reason I'm doing it is just to do it, then my whole time with him is going to look different than if I approach that with an attitude of, I really want to get to know Gary. I really want to fellowship with Gary. That's going to look a lot different when he comes over to my house. I'm going to make him tell me all his innermost, darkest secrets. No. But I am. I'm good. My desire is to, be, is to know him. Is that, that being known by God and that fellowship with God leads to wanting to get to know other people. People. And so knowing why, you are do- why you're doing what you're doing, being self-aware is extremely important. The example I gave that happens everywhere is, um, well, I won't go, I won't use that example. The second thing that I want you to see, the two big ways to maintain unity, one is to be self-aware, the other one is this. If, and this is where the supernatural really comes in. If other-focused fellowship is not happening... You've got to look to Christ. So if, if you're in a place and this fellowship is not happening in your life, I want you to look to Christ. If you're noticing, oh, I've got selfishness inside of me, that this, this self-centeredness is, is overtaking me and I'm having these quarrels and I'm having, I, I'm, this fellowship is being blocked, I want you to look to Christ. And there's two things in this, in this extended text that I want you to see. First, we see right after these verses, is that Christ is supposed to be our example in 5 through 8. 
having this attitude among yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus. And notice it says attitude and not just action. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That as we look to Christ, one of the things that we're supposed to do is we're supposed to model His humility. We're supposed to model His humility. He's supposed to be our example. The second thing I want you to see is not only is Christ supposed to be our example, He's also supposed to be our source. Look at verses 12 through 14. So then, beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So the connotation here is that the way to become other-focused is to look to Christ and He becomes our source And the way that I think this works together is that when we look at Christ and we realize our own need, that we are a sinner in need of grace, and we realize the mercy that God has given us in Christ, when we think deeply about the mercy and grace that we get from Jesus, it produces something in us. It's the working out of our salvation because when we think deeply about that love and mercy, it comes out of us. It also comes out of us. He becomes our source because we become aware that the reason that Christ died is to reconcile us to God for eternity. In this world, this world no longer becomes what is it for us and we become otherworldly. This love, this Christ becomes our source. So that we hold loosely things of this world. That we live in an open-handed, mission-oriented way. Now, it's interesting here because Paul gives us four examples of living this out. The first one is Jesus that we've just talked about. The second one is he points to himself, which sounds selfish, but is not. If you look at Paul and his life, in verse 17 through 18 of this chapter, notice this. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice of service of your faith, I rejoice, share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Notice he says, I am being poured out as a drink offering. You too, you too live in this matter, the manner. The second one we see is, or the third one we see, Jesus, Paul, Timothy. Look in verse 19 through 22. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. Notice how he describes Timothy. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not of those of Christ Jesus, but you know of his proven worth, notice his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of a gospel like a child serving his father. So we have Timothy here who's an example of emptying himself uh, in service, not only to the church of Philippi, but also to Paul. And the fourth example in verse 25 through 30 is Epaphroditus. Look in verses 25 through 30. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, 
who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Because he was longing, notice this, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. He was other focused. He was distressed because the church had heard he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him and not only on him, but also to me so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete was deficient, what was deficient in your service towards me. So this is how we are to live. This is how we are to fellowship with one another. We are to empty ourselves. We are to humble ourselves and we are to love one another. And this is what should mark our fellowship. And this is how we avoid high conflict in a church. And so now I want to ask the question, which I think is so vitally important, how in the world do we know how to love others? How do we know? It's actually easy. We have to spend time together. We have to spend time together. We have to be intentionally gathering together for the purpose of fellowship. I love the book of Hebrews. And I love in Hebrews chapter 10, I want you to think about something uh, with me this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day is drawing near. And one of the things I'm always convicted about when I read this passage is that a lot of times when we read this Hebrews passage, what are we trying to get people to do? To show up on Sunday mornings, right? Which is good. We need to be showing up on Sunday mornings. What I want to ask you is this. Sunday mornings in our culture and in our uh, day and age doesn't allow the time for the kind of fellowship that needs to take place in the body. Right? How many of you had just a wonderful time of fellowship while you were trying to grab a cup of coffee real quick so you could skirt into a class and then you could be ushered into the hallway to have Gary say, okay, everybody come in, we've got to start the service on time. and then, Right? So... So what we're doing is biblical and necessary and good on Sunday mornings, but what I want to urge you, where I want to urge you is that this type of fellowship has got to also take place outside of the Sunday morning gathering time. This is the reason why we have things like growth groups and Titus 2 and men's ministry. Now, the danger of the church organizing events like this is that it can become a legalistic, check-the-box, dutiful endeavor other than what it was meant to be. And so what I want to encourage us is how to avoid these dangers. And how we avoid these dangers is this, is that when we participate in these things, that our focus and our purpose should be as we go into, that we are going into thinking, how can I bless How can I encourage? How can I get to know? And how can I love others? Church, like everything else in our society, has has 
come to be this place where we bring our consumer attitude with us and that we're saying, what does this do for me? And, and man, I am guilty of saying, hey, um, you should go to growth group because here's what it can do for you. What if we all had the attitude when we went to our growth group or when we went to our, ladies, when you went to your Titus 2 group, or men, as we went to our gathering, what if we, the attitude that we fought, that we were self-aware, and when we started having that thought process of, oh, how is this going to benefit me? I'm tired, I'm this, I'm, th- I'm that. What if we were self-aware, and we say, oh, that's the wrong attitude, that's a selfish attitude, I need to have an other-focused attitude, and we thought about... Um, you know, how would Jesus go into this? What has Jesus done for me? How has He changed my heart? How can I go and be a blessing to others? And so we went to these gatherings with a sense of being versus a sense of doing. How would it deepen that fellowship? Now, um, the greatest way to end this service and the clock is working, so I have no excuse. The greatest way to end this service is with communion. I want to read for you um, 1, Corinthians and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 through 19. Paul writes, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This morning, we're going to partake of communion. And I'd like for our guys who are going to pass out the elements to come on forward. As we do this, one of the things that I want you thinking about is I think far too often when we partake of communion... Um, we think of it in an in a, a individualistic way. This morning, as you have heard in the text, and as you, have, as you have hopefully read along in the book of Philippians, that our fellowship, it works both ways, right? It's the same side, it's the different side of the same coin. Our fellowship with one another is based on what God has done in us. And because of what God has done in us means that we have fellowship with one another. So when we come to this table, one of the things that we should be thinking about is that what this represents, the body and the blood of Christ, what this represents is our reason for gathering here together. And so this morning, this morning, as we partake in the Lord's Supper, I'm going to pray and pass out the elements and the guys will distribute them to you. One of the things I want you to be encouraged by and I want you to think about as we partake in the Lord's Supper is number one, think about and remember what God has done for you. And I pray that you're just blown away because of the mercy and the grace of God in your life. And the second thing that I want you to think about is how can I deepen my fellowship with these brothers and sisters around me in such a way that we this communion, this gathering together of believers, the world as it would come in and look at this would say, 
that is weird. That those people from various backgrounds, various walks of life coming together, love each other that much based on nothing that they're getting from the other one. What in the world is going on? That should be what our fellowship, what our community looks like. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for Christ. God, I thank you for this body, this local body of gathered believers. God, I pray that your word, your spirit, would bind our hearts together. God, I pray that this would be a place of deep fellowship, of deep communion, that is focused on our relationship with you. It's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen.